You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, as part of the HIA 20 celebration, a special lecture by Professor Daniel Carey, director of the Moore Institute at NUI Galway. Professor Carey's lecture, The Future of the Humanities, Challenges and Opportunities, took place online on the 8th of October, 2021. The lecture was introduced by Professor Anna Fuchs, director of the UCD Humanities Institute. Hello, everyone. My name is uh, Anne Fuchs. I'm the director of the UCD uh, Humanities Institute, and I would like to extend my very, very warm welcome to everyone who's attending this special event celebrating 20 years of the UCD Humanities Institute. We are really delighted that uh, th- this, this event has garnered so much interest, especially on a Friday afternoon. We appreciate it. Uh, and we are hugely looking forward to a very stimulating lecture by my colleague, uh, Professor Daniel Carey. Uh, as a reminder, this event will be recorded. So uh, we're going to turn it into a podcast for our website. By continuing your attendance at this event, you're obviously giving consent to being recorded if you uh, ask a question later on. Before I introduce um, our speaker today, I would like to take a brief moment to actually look back over 20 years of the history of the UCD Humanities Institute. Obviously, it was founded in, 2000, in, in 2001 uh, under PRTLI 3, and since then, the Institute has seen generations of PhD students and postdocs who have passed through and um, benefited from this vibrant interdisciplinary research environment in which PhD students, postdocs, and senior researchers come together to discuss their ideas. So in its 20th year of history, the Institute has now hosted hundreds of workshops and conferences and distinguished guest lectures indeed, just as today's event. And uh, in so doing, it has placed uh, uh, humanities research, not just UCD research, but national and international research on on the map of what's going on. In the period between 2016 and 2021, there were four flagship HI-funded research projects on topics ranging from comparative perspectives on Ireland and the Caribbean, modern architecture, narrative and architecture, and the aesthetics and politics of cultural memory and mediation. We also had a number of in-house research projects, all of them interdisciplinary in nature, including the Wellcome Trust-funded project on framing aging, which is still ongoing, or UCD's College of Arts and Humanities transnationalizing the humanities research strand, and our HI UCD Uh, research seed funding scheme, which is now in its third years. And of course, over the years, we've also built up uh, collaborations with external partners, ranging from the IMLR in London, the Research Institute in Kyoto, to uh, Tallinn University. And I would especially like to welcome our visiting fellow from from, uh, Tallinn, 
Professor Marek Tam, who's attending this event today. Of course, we are very sad that this is a virtual event. We would have wanted to celebrate in person with you over a glass of uh, wine and, of course, you know, um, having conversations and all that. And hopefully we can return to this kind of face-to-face -face encounter in the very near future. Before concluding uh, my uh, introduction to the UCD Humanities Institute, I'd like to just mention that the HI has a very strong track record of public engagement and broadening the reach of humanities scholarship to a very, very wide audience. And this is uh, particularly evidenced in the Institute's uh, SoundCloud channel, uh, where we uh, attract really a global audience. We post regular po podcasts and our download figures are indeed uh, very uh, impressive. So we have an average of 1500 downloads a month. Um, so ob obviously this underlines that kind of engaging with the broader public is, is a very important dimension of our work. Here is the uh, uh, UCD Humanities Institute podcast download. So um, th there are some links, uh, uh, our iTunes, SoundCloud, etc. And you, if you go up to our website, you will find it and you can kind of look at the contents. Um, and uh, if you are interested in, in learning more about what we've been up to over the past five years, you can also download our five-year report called UCD Humanities Institute Achievements and Challenges in which we review what we've been doing over the past five years. It is now my very great uh, pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Professor Daniel Carey, who is uh, the director of the Moore Institute, a similar institute at the National University of Ireland, Galway. He is a member of the Irish uh, Research Council and uh, serves currently as Secretary for the Humanities and Social Sciences for the Royal Irish Academy. He also chaired the Irish Humanities Alliance, which is a very important forum of debate for anybody uh, in, in the humanities between 2014 and 16. His research interests uh, focus on early modern travel, cross-cultural contact and colonialism, the history of science, intellectual history, and the history and philosophy of money, a very interesting topic. And his publications include a monograph on Locke, Shaftesbury, Hutchison, Contesting Diversity in the Enlightenment and Beyond, and edited volumes, for example, on Money and Political Economy in the Enlightenment, or Richard Hacklett and Travel Writing in Early Modern Europe, or The Post-Colonial Enlightenment, 18th Century Colonialism, post-colonial theory or Asian travel in the Renaissance. He's also the general co-editor of the Richard Hacklett's Principal Navigations, Voyages, Traffics and Discoveries of the English Nation, which will come out with Oxford UP in 14 volumes. Now, um, I asked Dan to give this lecture today for many reasons, but above all, because he's a passionate champion uh, uh, for the humanities. So Dan, you're very, very welcome to today's uh, uh, lecture and we are looking forward to uh, your lecture, which is entitled uh, The Future of the Humanities, Challenges and Opportunities. I'm handing over to you. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, Hannah, and uh, to colleagues in the Humanities Institute, and uh, many congratulations on your 20th uh, birthday. This is definitely a moment to celebrate. There have been wonderful achievements uh, associated with the Humanities Institute, uh, so it's a great milestone, and it's definitely a pleasure for me as director of a sister institute founded in 2000 to record our kinship and, uh, and shared mission, really. So the future of the humanities, challenges and opportunities. How much time have we got? A word of clarification before I begin. Um, my focus is gonna be not so much on prognostications um, in the sense of charting where the field is going to go. Uh, much as I would like to channel my inner Alvin Toffler, I'm going to repress that today and try to think a little bit more about um, some of the conditions, what I would call the conditions of possibility for the humanities to continue in the future, maybe to frame it in that way. Um, a number of my concerns will relate to research, but I will come, come back to, to teaching and to our students uh, as I move on. I thought I would begin with an observation about the work of one of the most influential figures in research policy, Mariana Matsukato. Matsukato is professor of the economics of innovation and public value at UCL, and she is the author of the very influential Matsukato report released in 2018. She made a case there, an argument for a missions approach to research in Europe, and her proposals have been adopted uh, by the European uh, Union in, in connection with Horizon Europe in a, in a very profound way in terms of funding and Im implications. And she's recently published a, an interesting book um, which details her vision in, uh, in more in, in more uh, more length. This is you know her, her mission economy. I'm just holding it up there. <laughs> mission economy, a moonshot guide to changing capitalism. Now there's a lot to admire in her uh, assessment of the role of government in risk taking. Um, she has a kind of critique of businesses as being risk averse in comparison with what governments can do. I think she's broken <clears throat> a lot of interesting ground. Now, one of the great examples that she dwells on, and it's there in the title, um, is the mission to the moon, uh, announced by President Kennedy, and then ultimately achieved in 1969 with Apollo 11. We know the history. And there's a lot that she draws out of significance about this undertaking. I want to dwell for a moment on an area that she describes at some length, and that's what she calls spillovers. Um, and in fact, she has a graphic that captures them, which is called 20 things we wouldn't have without space travel. <laughs> this is low tech PowerPoint. I'm just gonna hold it up to you. Show you, the, show you, show you this fine graphic. Um, okay, they include uh, CAT scans, uh, scratch res resistant lenses, foil blankets, home insulation, memory foam, and ear thermometers. Nowhere in Matsukato's account is there any mention of the impact of space travel on the imagination, of the profound effects of that moment of human aspiration and achievement. I don't think we can understand the 1960s and beyond without an awareness of this phenomenon. And I will submit but one example, Star Trek. Now this might cause you to chuckle, but is there anything more significant in terms of cultural production than the television series as an articulation of human possibility and the attempt to work out a moral framework, the utopian inflections of what that moment of space exploration might mean. I present this as an instance of what we're up against uh, in the humanities. The situation, as we all know, is difficult. And one of the issues is enabling those who make policy to recognize the significance of the values, priorities, and methods, and the, indeed the research that we contribute. I regard these things as fundamental. 
We need on the one hand to recognize the depth of the problem we're facing and the need for new strategies. Collective recommitment to this task is crucial to the future of the humanities. So at the outset, I thought I would dwell for a while on some things that make our position challenging. The first of these, and forgive me if it seems a little bit eccentric as a point of departure, is that we lack a livery. Science has the splendid advantage of the lab coat. This furnishes scientists uh, with an icono iconography that resonates with the public. It's usually accompanied in photos and videos by the Petri dish, the test tube, Bunsen burners, and other apparatus. We don't need to know or understand what tests or experiments are being conducted, but we have a sense of science as an activity. Science is something you do, not so in the humanities. You do not do the humanities. Our iconography, to the extent that it exists, is probably still the book, an image that conveys not action but contemplation as the mind implicitly wrestles with discursive prose or engages in forms of daydreaming and escape in the realms of narrative or verse. And I, I, I haven't connected to the internet, so I'll just invite you at, at some point at your leisure, um, if you're familiar with Pixabay, where you can kind of access um, free images, quite useful if you're designing posters, if you put in the search term science, you'll see some interesting images. And if you put in the, the search term humanities, you'll also find some interesting images. They, they tend to be of people in distressing situations associated with plague, human suffering, and so forth. So that's the iconography, I guess, associated in the public mind, or at least with these search algorithms with the humanities. Then there is the issue of the name. Science is recognized as a unified and intelligible practice, even if our capacity as outsiders to understand the specifics is often very limited. Science and the concept of the scientist resonate with the public. What they dedicate themselves to may be abstruse, but the parameters and purpose can be assimilated. The humanities, by contrast, is a fairly meaningless term, I would argue, for the public. What exactly does it conjure? At a minimum, it requires explanation and glossing, which means we've lost half the battle. And the arts don't really function as a substitute in quite the same way, even if most of us, you know, today, I'm imagining anyway, teach in colleges of arts. The arts uh, tend to conjure, of course, artistic practice, art forms, you know, artists are the practitioners. And not, it doesn't speak to those who, who conduct research in disciplines such as history, philosophy, literature, or language as the humanities is intended to do. To stick with terminology for a moment, we, we face further difficulties in the absence of a galvanizing phrase like STEM, which has achieved a level of recognition not enjoyed by AHSS. Nor have we settled on a consistent version, often swapping between AHSS, SSH, and HSS. There are perhaps others out there. Myself, I'm a little bit skeptical about STEAM as a uh, kind of remedy to the situation. Um, there has been more recently the introduction of SHAPE into the equation as an interesting development. The acronym refers to social sciences, humanities, and the arts for people in the economy. One might perhaps wish for something that slips a little more easily off the tongue. Science as we know in a European or continental context is inclusive, but not so here. I think we're better off using the phrase research as the generic term that encompasses all the activities, uh, not just in the humanities, uh, social sciences, but also science generally. But I must admit that in discussions that I'm involved in, it requires constant policing here to make sure that people don't use 
the shorthand term of science. Now it's a little bit curious, I guess, in passing to note that the new Department of Higher and Further Education um, disaggregates research and science for reasons I don't really understand. I think we can all wish, wish that, the, uh, that the word uh, Wissenschaft was in wider usage. The larger problem that we face has more serious consequences. Science is understood as equivalent to knowledge. As a form of inquiry, it is always positioned at the frontier. Science makes gains in knowledge. While there are things unknown to science, that phrase will no doubt be familiar, science is positioned to make discoveries and breakthroughs. It makes advances. The fact that these advances, advances may be accompanied by practical benefits is an added bonus. But the fundamental proposition is that we deal in science with the epistemically substantive. The humanities are not entirely shut out of this equation, and there are moments of discovery, but they tend to be associated with things like finding a lost document and not with the presentation of an argument per se. Evidence is definitely part of the knowledge proposition in the humanities, an archival breakthrough, for example, that demonstrates a key historical point. But we deal in many respects with the domain of interpretation as a collective. There is tremendous richness in this proposition, but it is too often understood in, in public contexts as an enterprise of opinion, not of knowledge. Nor can it be said to represent an advance. And I think universities are, in fact, often complicit in this. Um, in my institution, it was interesting. There was a website, as many institutions presented, on COVID research. But there was a kind of uh, hierarchy in terms of where things were positioned. So research in the, in the sciences and in the social sciences was showcased and treated, I think, as, as knowledge generating and as breakthrough and as practical. And contributions in the humanities were relegated kind of to an opinion, uh, an opinion section. So we contributed to thought, but not to anything beyond thought. Um, There's a, a sort of egregious example mentioned in passing, Luke O'Neill's prize-winning book, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Science, I think is predicated on the notion that there's a lot of talk elsewhere, and then you get down to science, and that's where the real business and the real action takes place. On the other side of the equation is the tremendous emphasis on the relationship between science and industry, and the commitment to science as an engine of job creation. I'm going to say a little bit more about that later on, but for now, the, the point that I want to make is that there's a set of assumptions and characterizations that has come together, which reinforces the status of science as serious and estimable, and the humanities as, well, if not redundant, then perhaps ornamental. Good to have as a kind of indulgence, but not exactly essential. We know from the severity of the funding imbalance uh, in the domain of research that um, the situation is pretty stark from that point of view. Uh, with Jane Conroy and Mary O'Dowd in the Royal Irish Academy, I worked on a document recently that we presented to Simon Harris making a case for the humanities. Um, and we noted there that according to the most uh, recent higher education research and development survey, the, the herd survey as it's called in Ireland 2018 to 19, humanities researchers represented 9.7% of the total pool of researchers, yet only 5% of the total quantum of R&D funding was devoted to supporting humanities research. In fact, the decade from 2008 to 18, R&D funding for the humanities fell from 8% to 
to a total R&D of 5%, meaning that in relative terms, its allocation decreased, decreased by over 35%. Now, there's a lot more that could be said on this topic, including the fact that despite this low level of funding, Irish researchers in the humanities and social sciences have been very successful in securing international research funding. They represent 38% of all successful Irish applications uh, to the uh, successful applications uh, for European Research Council grants. Uh, and UCD has had some remarkable achievements that have really given a huge boost to researchers in the humanities across the island. So the stakes are indeed very high. We know, for example, that the next research and innovation strategy for Ireland is being formulated as we speak. And we risk a repetition of the failings of Innovation 2020, which had no space for the humanities and national priorities, and very little, in fact, for the social sciences either. Okay, so what can we do to address the situation? How can we repair and enhance the reputation of the humanities? What case can we make? Given the scope and severity of the problem, I think we need a range of strategies. Um, and I'll try to sketch some of them out um, in the time I have remaining. There is definitely work to be done. COVID is an interesting and important moment. Um, I think there's little doubt that the default setting in the public and in government is to regard, and indeed in many universities, is to regard this cataclysmic episode as a story about the heroism of science. And we're all indebted to the incredible work of people who develop vaccines at a record rate, and indeed to the healthcare workers uh, who confronted the horrendous impact of the disease in hospitals, um, working with patients um, in, in the gravest of circumstances. But it's also, COVID, that is, this moment, an opportunity to understand some powerful truths that draw out the humanities. I still believe, by the way, that the most efficient and valuable guide to how the crisis would develop um, is available in Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, published in 1720. For the Irish Humanities Alliance, uh, Anna mentioned uh, their work. Um, I have the opportunity to chair it, as indeed did, did, did Anna, so we're both very committed to it. Um, I wrote up a list of areas designed to emphasize the contribution that the humanities have made at this time. As someone who has hosted um, a total of 21 webinars on the crisis, I'm definitely convinced uh, of the value of these insights and the need for them. I can only mention a few of the headings briefly today. Here are, here are some of the areas to consider. We need documentation and writing of the history of COVID-19. That's obviously something for the future as well. The crisis is not yet over, but there will have to be a history of it and it will have to call on the strengths and abilities of people in the humanities to write it. We, didn't, we need analysis of the social, political and cultural impact of the crisis and its aftermath. Attention to information, truth and trust during the crisis, which has been absolutely crucial and we are still living with the effects, perhaps most visibly in the US, but in many other countries as well. The ethics and implications of data gathering during this uh, crisis have been quite uh, remarkable. Um, the tendency to view kind of technological solutionism as the way forward is rather striking um, and in the failed uh, contact tracing app in Ireland is rather instructive. We need a better understanding of the place of culture and its role in, uh, in well-being. I think a lot more work could have been done on this, and some of the defenses um, of the role of culture during the crisis were essentially palliative. I think something more substantive could have been done and should be done. 
which is really to think of culture uh, and the arts as what I call the, the meaning making part of the society. I think that has been a, a really important resource. Attention to differential impacts, including socioeconomic status, race, and access to education. Language and representation of COVID-19. I mean, so much of COVID-19 has been about storytelling. Um, most people are no longer able to absorb daily statistics on deaths, but we can listen to stories of grief, of suffering, and of loss. Storytelling has been absolutely essential to our experience of this pandemic. Attitudes to people such as the elderly and the infirm during the crisis, those who are essential and non-essential. Um, geographies of the crisis, including borders, information, vaccination distribution, and national strategies. Perspectives from the environmental and the medical humanities are crucial, such as the causes of the crisis and the ethic of care. And then finally, I would just mention uh, the philosophy of the pandemic, which includes many different dimensions. Um, but in my view, I would say that COVID-19 is ultimately about philosophy in the sense that it is about the order of values. Philosophy permeates every aspect of the crisis and our response to it. So I think a kind of commitment to those areas of research and endeavor and insight is really important going forward. Well, COVID for all of its devastating impact and ongoing impact is ultimately a specific situation. And I think we need a larger defense of the humanities and a set of vocabularies to explain our foundations, our mission and contribution. Now, some of this in an Irish context, I think is about self-recognition and not just in an Irish context, of course. But here nationally, key developments in Irish society have for many years been fostered by discussion in the humanities. These include the cultural and historical dimensions of the peace process, the referendum on same-sex marriage, the referendum on the repeal of, the, of Article 8 of the Irish Constitution, and the entire decade of centenaries as a vital source of national self-understanding and reconciliation. Current initiatives of major significance, just to mention a few, include the area of sexual consent, research on mother and baby homes, and the challenges of racism. Where would we be as a country without the work that humanity scholars do to advance our understanding of these issues? Now, one of the points that must be mentioned at the same time, I think, is that our work cannot always be pointed to in a precise and immediate way as having initiated change, but it is nonetheless essential to the conversation and equation. The sciences have the advantages sometimes of very specific breakthroughs that they can point to the kinds of things that win Nobel prizes in chemistry and medicine, for example. Our influence takes many forms that are not always easy to track in stimulating public debate, in raising consciousness, in advocacy, in representation. And all of these are grounded in research and in the classroom. While we want to put forward the, the argument for this research as an intrinsic good, that is as something essential to our own identity and uh, self-understanding, we also need to make other interventions. We need to establish in practical and conceptual terms how we contribute to society and the economy. Now, these are utility arguments at one level, but they're really, in fact, more powerful than that if described correctly. So we need to reclaim some space, I think, uh, to begin with, uh, within the concept of innovation. 
At present, as, as we know, innovation is associated almost exclusively with STEM and with business. In university settings, this is the domain of the technology transfer offices um, in our, in anyway, like always now called the innovation office. And it's not the domain of the wider academic community that would be inclusive of the humanities. The first point I would make is that there is no innovation without imagination. And we need to articulate how the capacity for flexible thought nurtures innovation and that breakthroughs occur through imagining alternatives. More than that, we need to show the humanities as in themselves a space of innovation in their own right through openness to methodological change and adaptation. It would be stating the obvious in this company to draw attention to the effects of digital tools in our research and the impact of larger data sets and linked data that will continue to reverberate in transformative ways. In other words, we exist not in static realms of repetition, but in creative combinations of methods. This here interdisciplinarity has profound effects and that is not just within the humanities disciplines or the humanities and social sciences, but well beyond in terms of contact, for example, with, with medicine and science uh, throughout its, its different forms. Alia, the European Federation of Academies of Sciences and Humanities has, has a good statement on this. Um, they point out that uh, in, the, in the European research area, they say should quote, promote an inclusive understanding of innovation as a way in which the varied aspects of society are transformed, be they cultural, social, governance, economic, or technological. Potential impact needs to be looked for not only in products and improvements in the economy, but also in the way people are able to process in innovation and lead their lives and the way that people live together in society. I would go further by saying that we need to articulate what I call the skill of the arts. Art subjects can and should be recognized as making contributions to skills and the creation of a skilled, adaptable, creative workforce. The most important Irish policy document on this topic is the National Skills Strategy 2025, prepared by the Department of Education and Skills. It was coupled by the announcement of the National Skills Council in April 2017, which is indeed in operation. Their strategy document embed, embeds skills in what they call the government's long-term economic plan to restore full employment and build a sustainable economy. And its overall goal is very much concerned with job creation and, and to, to ensure future uh, job growth, economic growth. There are a number of serious shortcomings in the vision projected by the document, but it does make some useful points. For example, that quote, the labor market is constantly evolving and the specific occupations, skills, and qualifications that are required change over time. The increasingly interdisciplinary nature of the world of work is also resulting in overlaps in the skills required across different sectors and occupations. Over the next 10 years, people working in Ireland will need a mix of sectoral, cross-sectoral, and transversal skills. Now, transversal skills, bit of a term of art, people have probably come across it. They're sometimes referred to as employability skills, soft skills, or transferable skills. And they can refer to things like communication, resilience, creativity, and problem solving. Well, I think this model creates an opening for us, but we need to spell out how we equip our students to contend with this world of work. So what are the skills that our degrees confer on students? The most complete answer has been provided by the British Academy in a report that they released in November 2017 called The Right Skills, Celebrating Skills in the Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences. 
They identified three broad areas of skills that are possessed by AHSS graduates. And they are communication and collaboration, research and analysis, and attitudes and behaviors characterized by independence and adaptability. Now, all those things can be brought, broken down into much fuller, fuller explanation and description. Uh, I won't do that for, for, the, for the sake of time. But there are also, it should be noted, you know, a whole series of skills that are related perhaps to more specific disciplines. So they would include languages, high-level numeracy, qualitative analysis, and data processing skills, geospatial skills, practical production skills, content production, recording and broadcasting, and archival skills. I think we need to do a lot more to make these skills, um, to make it aware, to make our students aware that that's what's being cultivated when they do research and, and study in our areas. Uh, and we also need to bring that to the wider public as a form of understanding. Our students, I think to a certain extent, lack a vocabulary for talking about this and an awareness that they possess them. And I think there's way too much apologizing by art students for the degrees that they pursue, which is really just an unfortunate reflection of cultural messaging and the irrelevance or self-indulgence of these subjects of studies, uh, study as they are often perceived. Well, okay, that, that's the case in principle. But as I say, there's a lot more work to be done to spell out the actual employability of our graduates. And here it has to be said that the paucity of available data and research on career trajectories in Ireland is a serious problem. I think we got a long way to go here and there really needs to be work and support and investments in tracking the development of careers. So once again, we have to turn to UK sources to make the point. The British Council um, investigated what it called Educational Pathways of Leaders, an international comparison in 2015. And they found that 11% of global leaders had studied humanities at undergraduate level. Now, maybe you think that's a little bit low, but consider then that they found that only 6% had a background in mathematics, biological, and physical sciences. And a further 4% came from health fields. So even the aggregate of those two broad areas leads the humanities ahead. Well, just to prove the point, I thought I would give some examples that have accumulated over time. Only yesterday, there was a report in The Guardian that some people may have seen um, stating that only eight, eight uh, out of the top 100 companies in the UK are headed by women. I decided to look them up. Amanda Blank, CEO of, of Aviva, took her BA in history from Liverpool. Alison Rose, CEO of NatWest, did her BA in history at Durham. Emma Walmsley, CEO of GSK Pharmaceutical Glaxo, GlaxoSmithKline, studied classics and modern languages in Oxford. Carolyn McCall, CEO of ITV, formerly uh, CEO of EasyJet, read history and politics at Kent. Liv Garfield, CEO of the water company Severn Trent, studied French and German at Newhall, Cambridge, now Murray Edwards College. In other words, a large number of the eight companies are headed by people with backgrounds in the humanities. So perhaps the best way forward as uh, advocates for the humanities would be to ensure that we uh, agitate for more women CEOs. In a similar vein, you might be interested that Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank and former managing director of the IMF has an MA in English. Abigail Johnson, chief executive officer of the American firm Fidelity Investments, did a BA in art history at Hobart and William Smith College. In the world of politics, it might be worth noting that Beto O'Rourke, a sometime presidential and Senate candidate, has a degree in English from Columbia. 
Carly Fiorina, one-time candidate for the presidency on the Republican side and former CEO of Hewlett Packard, studied medieval history and philosophy at Stanford. And, he, and uh, Emmanuel Macron is a philosophy gra graduate of, of Paris-Nanterre and worked as an editorial assistant uh, for Paul Ricoeur. I could go on, I have a long list uh, of these fine exemplars. My point is that doing a degree in a humanities subject evidently did not disqualify these people from excelling in disparate fields. Presumably, it did more than that. It gave them a foundation and relationship to the world that was enabling. In closing, I wanna offer a few arguments in favor of the humanities that build on this. Christian Meinsberg offers some helpful analysis in his book, Sensemaking, What Makes Human Intelligence Essential in the Age of the Algorithm. This is this book published in 2017. And uh, it's an opportunity to thank my friend, Owen White, a graduate of UCD with whom I've had many conversations on this topic. And he's brought my attention to many things that have been very helpful in thinking about these questions. Anyway, Christian Mansberg in this book calls for form, forms of knowledge uh, that he says are, are not reductionist. And he highlights the ways in which he says the humanities teach us how to imagine other worlds. They do more than just that. Because when, when we can fully imagine other worlds, he says, using cultural knowledge and explanations for our human experience, we inevitably develop a more acute perspective on our own world. These forms of cultural intelligence, as he calls them, are grounded in reading seminal texts of different cultures and understanding other languages. What he calls sense-making, the title of his book, is practical wisdom rooted in the humanities and is defined in terms of the Aristotelian concept of phrenesis. Now, the fact that he co-founded a consultancy firm, RED Associates, based in Denmark in the US, which suggests that there is some appetite to apply this in the world. A similar case for an anthropological sensibility has been made in a new book by Gillian Tett, an editor at the Financial Times, who happens to have a PhD in anthropology from Cambridge. She actually did her field work in, uh, on marriage rights in Tajikistan. This is her book, um, Anthrovision, How Anthropology Can Explain Business and Life, published this year. She makes a persuasive argument for uh, what she calls an intellectual framework that enables you to see around corners, spot what is hidden in plain sight, gain empathy for others, and fresh insight on problems. This framework is needed now more than ever as we grapple with climate change, she says, pandemics, racism, social media run amok, artificial intelligence, financial turmoil, and political conflict. And she goes on to describe the ways in which that grounding has enabled her to deal with, report on, and even to anticipate some of the major events of our time in terms of political conflict, the emergence of Donald Trump, et cetera. Now, I could say much more on these topics, but uh, we're coming to a close. Um, I'd be interested in saying and reflecting something about the nature of language and that language is constitutive. I think of language as in effect, the greatest human invention. It's not unique to us as a species, but the development of language as a capacity is surely the greatest invention of human beings, the most significant and the most lasting and the most widespread in terms of its impact and effects. Much more could be said about communication as what is enabled by the skill. And sometimes again, in the national skills document, it references languages 
but often in a kind of transmission mode. It doesn't understand communication in that wider sense of meeting people on their own terms and attempting to understand another's point of view. We could reflect more widely on the impact of practice-based research, which I think has been transformative and indeed more widely of the place of the imagination with which I began. There was a further rationale and, and justification for what we, what we do and motivation for what we do in the public humanities, which has emerged, I think, particularly in the US uh, as a way of trying to capture our mission. Ultimately, our shared objective is to create a more humanized subjectivity, something of even greater necessity in the, in the contemporary world. In short, we should embrace the humanities. We should cultivate them through government policy and our educational systems and research schemes. They have and will nurture the, fu the future, not only in employment terms, but in making the country and the world a place we want to live in, one that is more fully human. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dan, for a fascinating and passionate, indeed, uh, lecture. You are a champion of the humanities. You have been a champion of the humanities, and we're really pleased that you're here fighting our, our, our cause. We have time for questions. Now, if you wish to ask a question, please put it in the question answer section, um, type it in, and we will read it out. And while you are thinking about your questions, maybe I can, I can start by, by, by um, just developing an aspect of, of, of your argument, Dan. You, you mentioned COVID-19 as a break, and perhaps even as an opportunity. Uh, you spoke about re, the reordering of values which is needed. And I think we all, when we were kind of brought to a halt, had this experience in many different different ways that perhaps we were looking, we were looking more closely at smaller things, appreciating things that we hadn't noticed before. Um, and you also mentioned the, um, the conflict between statistics and storytelling. And in, indeed, our media have been preoccupied with statistics at the detriment of storytelling. Now, I wonder, in the light of what you've said, to what extent is it perhaps counterproductive for the humanities to buy into the language of policy, a language that has been dominated by the STEM subjects and by very narrowly defined economic interests? So I'm wondering, is it really productive to adopt the perspective of, say, innovation? That's a term that's being bandied about all the time in terms of um, research policies, et cetera, or impact. Does this not really feed into a, master a neoliberal master narrative which has undermined um, our standing? That's, that's, a very challenging, uh, that's a very challenging point. And I have probably two contradictory ways of responding to it. I mean, partly, partly I think, yeah, I want to make the case for the contribution that humanities can make. And I think COVID is a, a fairly unique opportunity. As my, uh, my colleague and friend, Nessa Cronin said, you know, this is, uh, this is a, an all of society problem that requires an all of society response. And I think this is a relatively unique opportunity for people to actually appreciate that where one can make that case without it sounding like special pleading or you're trying to elbow your way into something that you're not intrinsically have a relationship to. So I, I do think that there's something, I think that there's something there. 
there have been some practical occasions, particularly um, work th that the Royal Irish Academy, and uh, for example, has done in making the argument that there shouldn't be just a chief scientific officer or advisor. There, <laughs> there should be a body of expertise, and that expertise should enfranchise the humanities and social sciences. So, I guess in general, I think, I, th I think we need to try to make that case. I think we should try to do it not artificially, not adventitiously, in our own vocabulary as much as we can. I think we should try to appeal to people intuitively in ways that they might recognize their own humanistic formation and the stake that they have in it. Um, I think that that would have important bearing, for example, on the successor to Innovation 2020. Now, with Innovation 2020, which was formulated when the country was in grave difficulty and it's the shadow of the economic crisis is all over that document, but we had to live with it <laughs> until 2020. The problem with it was, as I mentioned, that it had absolutely no vision for the humanities. And the one thing we can be thankful for was that it was not rigorously applied. If it had been, there would have been absolutely no money <laughs> for, for the humanities. So there's almost a kind of uh, Lechec uh, Kolakowski has a wonderful essay on in praise of inconsistency. You know, I mean, you know, grown up in a Polish communist regime, you can see where he was he was headed with that. Um, at times, I think that's almost you know the space that we occupy is the space of inconsistency. I th I think you make an interesting and really challenging point about the potential neoliberal sl slippery slope in this. And one of the things that we have to hold on to is our, our critical function. And I didn't, I didn't talk about that really for reasons of time, about the kind of critical mission of the humanities that we contribute. So I don't think we can sacrifice that. I don't think it entails that we're somehow signing up to an agenda. In fact, it should be quite the opposite. And that if we can create the space in which we are active participants in the conversation, we can meaningfully shift it in a more human direction. So but I accept the challenge, yeah. Well, um, I'm, um, Peter Brown has an interesting uh, uh, question. I'll read it out for you, Peter Brown from the Irish Research Council. So he's saying in, in effect that if you look at the, the statistics on, on climate change and the, 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 the data um, reported today in the papers that actually people are not willing to make sacrifices in spite of the overwhelming scientific evidence that we are in the era of dramatic climate, not just climate change, but a climate crisis. Yeah. People are not willing to sacrifice their lifestyles. So he's, he's I'm just summarizing briefly, he was basically saying this, is, this, this shows that we need the humanities to make the public case, to provide us with the narrative, not just the data as to why we need to change the way we live. Uh, but that was the point he was basically making that kind of, you know, this is a case study that demonstrates why we need imagination, empathy, critical analysis, and narrative. And it's not good enough to bombard people with figures. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously this is a huge question and no greater one confronting us at the moment. No, I mean, if God would be, it would be such a failure not to recognize how, how critical the contribution is that the humanities can make in these terms. And in, Peter is absolutely right in that respect. Some of this is through, through storytelling. I think there's an interesting related question and has, has COVID made it more possible to understand the severity of the climate crisis 
or has it meant that we're exhausted by one crisis? We really need to turn away from crisis and we will enter some space in which we don't want to be troubled by these things. I think that's difficult to say what, how, how things are going to, what direction things are going to pull on. If I'm optimistic, I think it's partly that, that COVID enabled us to understand something of global significance <laughs> and that supply chains and things going on in obscure places in China have an impact, a direct impact on what's happening now. So I think it may be possible to engage people by that more fully than it has been in the past. But absolutely, and I think there's so much dedicated work going on that is, that is really fundamental. So uh, yeah, I, I think Peter is absolutely right. I have another question here um, by Eileen. She's writing, thanks for a thoughtful searching talk. I wonder whether you see the recent turn to public humanities, the applied humanities or the hyphenated humanities, for example, medical humanities, climate humanities, digital humanities, as potentially game changing. Yeah. It's potentially game changing that we enter new alliances with the yeah. medical disciplines or the yeah. earth sciences or yeah. whatever it may be, or the, the computer sciences. Yeah. Is this game changing or is it, are, are we just, let me polemicize, are we just add-ons? Yeah, Th that is the question. I mean, are we, are, we, are we turning ourselves into passengers? I mean, in a, in a, in a sort of my contemplating the talk, I was sort of thinking, you know, are we destined to sort of, you know, be passengers on the bus? And then I thought, no, no, no. We're waving at the bus as it goes by. <laughs> Maybe our situation is worse than that. Thank you, Eileen. This is Eileen Galuli, who's, who's director of the Heyman Center for the Humanities at Columbia and an outstanding advocate for the humanities and the public humanities. So, I mean, Eileen really, I, I think, would be best placed to answer that question herself. I, I think I'm right that the public humanities as a concept has more presence or reach in the United States than it does elsewhere. So I think it's gonna be interesting to see how that concept develops. There were a number of other possibilities that she was mentioning about the hyphenated humanities. Um, I don't think that we have to force people into that space. I, I think that, that would be wrong and improper. But I do think that, that there's something impetuous in a really good way. Um, Something, if I may say, in the 17th century meaning of the term promiscuous, there's something promiscuous about the humanities. Like, you, you can't nail it down. People are always trying to combine with other things to, to find new research questions, new methods, new ways of getting access to, to understanding, to, to truth in its broadest sense. So I don't think we can script that. I don't think we can direct people that way. Yeah, that, would, that would be, I think, as I say, kind of improper in one sense. But there are enormous opportunities. I mean, I've worked myself quite a bit on history of science and has been very productive. I don't feel subordinate to it. It's really an exercise of curiosity. And I do think that actually gives me a little bit of an opportunity to say something I didn't develop in the piece, which is we have a lot of common cause with the sciences. A lot of what I'm saying is actually scientism. It is the public or ideological presentation of science, and I don't think speaks very accurately to how, for example, innovation takes place in the sciences. These are immensely creative and often highly interpretive activities. And I think if we can create those bridges and conversations, we can raise the level of understanding and awareness and value that scientists attach to what we do. It's not the only, it's not the only enterprise, but I think it can be productive and, and, and valuable. Perhaps one could also say that a lot of science uh, research does not result in any breakthroughs. It's a kind of the science mythology, 
that science investment necessarily produces breakthroughs. So, I mean, that has funding implications, but I'm going to take a few more questions here. So, okay, we have a question from our visiting fellow, Professor Marek Tam, who's professor of history at Tallinn University. And I'm going to read out his uh, 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 comment and question. Many thanks for your rich and passionate talk. I wonder to what extent the humanity should change in our time of great transformations, especially in ecological and technological terms. There is, for instance, a rich discussion about the post-humanities, about how to overcome the human-centeredness of humanities, how to include non-humans in the humanities research. What is your take on this? It's a very important question. Oh, it's a great question, Merrick. Thank you very much. And I have I have thought about it. I haven't, I wouldn't say that I had resolved my thinking. I Maybe it's my, I'm an 18th, you know, 18th century scholar. Maybe it's my, you know, kind of enlightenment proclivities. I, I find myself hesitating to discard the human. I know that's not what you're saying. You're saying a, a more, uh, a more humble, <laughs> a greater humility is appropriate. Absolutely, as an ethic that is tremendously important. And if we can connect it in powerful ways to various different kinds of literary traditions, to, to pastoral, and all sorts of ways of, of engaging with that. Um, I guess I feel a little bit nervous about the, the phrase or the notion of the post-human, partly because of the way it, it communicates. And does it play into the kind of technological focus, um, which is denuded of cultural understanding? I would hope not. I do think that there's a little bit of a risk there. So I guess I'm 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 hesitant uh, to a certain extent. I I I value that research. I've learned from it. Um, I have you know friends and colleagues working on it. It's been hugely productive. You think of kind of thing theory and in, in literary studies has been really imaginative, has opened possibilities of interpretation, our relationship to the non-human animal world. So maybe it's, you know, there are, I think, powerful things that validate the human while also making us more humble that I think can can be explored. So I, the vocabulary, I guess I, I worry about a little bit. Okay. There is a question from Eve Patton. Thank you, Dan, for such a respectful treatment of the subject. My question is this. In addition to your focus on imagination and communication as key skills, could you, as a historian, evaluate the undervalued skill of interpretation, which seems to me a major strength of the uh, arts and humanities education? How can this be better captured as a core strength of our disciplines? And I suppose that is at the heart of, uh, you know, of our problem. How can we kind yeah. of capture this, 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 what we do, of what we do so well. Yeah, great question, Eve. And um, yes, you know, it's wonderful to be joined by, by another director of a humanities institute, which is dedicated to these questions. Yeah, I was trying to draw out some of the dilemmas there. I mean, obviously, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think interpretation is where it's at. Interpretation is always based on, on argument and evidence. And when we're teaching, we're always trying with our PhD students and others to sort of say, what is the relationship between argument and evidence? This is not just a bundle of assertions, it's something you have to back up. So, but it's still fundamentally in the domain of interpretation where there's no settlement of an argument and there's no finality. I mean, Paul Ricoeur, I mentioned earlier, has a wonderful book called, you know, The, you know, the Conflict of Interpretations. That is the hermeneutic um, tradition that I think we broadly occupy. That is, it must be said that that's quite difficult to convey beyond the academy. I think it's really important with our students so that they are skeptical about about evidence. They don't treat it as the final thing, that they're not naive empiricists, that they understand how theory informs evidence and and empirical uh, detail and so forth. 
I think that interpretation ends up being relegated to the to the to the to the status of opinion. So in other words, those are, there are those who are the brokers in knowledge, and there are those who are the brokers in opinion, and we get cast in that role. So maybe there needs to be a more emphatic argument. I think one way is to be perhaps a little bit more, you know, emphatic in talking about the, the embeddedness of interpretation within all knowledge producing enterprises. I mean, uh, my oldest brother is a geologist and I've been struck by him and talking to him and he works for the national labs in Los Alamos. It's like, yeah, that's high level stuff in the sciences. But a lot of ge ge geology is interpretive. You know, we have the notion of the hard sciences and I just wonder how hard they are. They have their own sociological practices. They are embedded in knowledge making <laughs> forms of practice that we can look at and be rightly skeptical about. But there is a little bit of cultural advantage that I think we have to acknowledge and maybe contend with. I think the um, problem you know, connected to this is, of course, the reduced epistemology of knowledge in, in policy documents. Whenever knowledge, the term knowledge is being used, it refers to applicable in an immediate sense to the workforce or the yeah. workplace or yeah. the business world, right? Yeah. And it, must have, it must have, above all, an economic value, and we can put a figure on that. And yeah. that is the problem. Actually, it is no real scientist would agree with this reduced yeah. version of knowledge. So I think the vocabulary does need more, mm. more active criticism from, 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 from our side, from yeah. our end of the table. Yeah. Okay. Um, mm. Maybe we can take two more questions, if that's okay. Are you happy with that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good discussion. So uh, here is uh, a question from Annie Cabaza. I'll read it out. Um, I was fascinated by, your fascinated by your focus in the second half of your talk on students and the skills they gain from humanities degrees. However, I'm always concerned that when we, concerned when we defend the humanities by ta talking about the work of teaching, we lean into the public perception of the humanities professor as someone whose job is teaching rather than research. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about how we can raise the profile of humanities research as valuable in its own right? Okay, yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. I suppose we're always, you know, at risk of being parodies of ourselves, <laughs> um, you know, appearing in, with mortar boards and such like. Uh, that, that's another, you know, a, a different set of iconography. Yeah, I, ta I take your point. Um, I think, yeah, there are different ways of doing that. I mean, one point that I've made recently with colleagues in the Irish Research Council, we we're talking about impact and the impact agenda, which I think, again, tends, you know, tends as it happens, to, to, to favor the sciences and the applied social sciences, notwithstanding the fact that UCD has led the way in that, and many humanities projects have received awards, I know, in UCD, so that, that, that's terrific. I would just say that. I think we need to emphasize that the nature of impact in the classroom is research-led. In other words, we need to understand that inspirational and powerful and impactful teaching does not occur in the absence of research. It depends on it. And I think we should do much more work to, to, to highlight that and explain that in almost every teaching situation that we get into. And I don't mean like laboriously in every single lecture you get up and you're, you know, 200 people. But at some point in a lecture course, you should be saying, how that derives from your research. In other words, that there are frontiers of knowledge that have been broken through 
whether we understand these profoundly as hermeneutic and interpretational or not. So I, I, I don't know if that quite captures your question, but that, that's kind of my intuition, at least in part, partly to answer it. Okay, there's a question from my colleague, Katrina Nidul in, in Cork. Uh, she's writing, you've begun to touch on your remarks on the critical function of the humanities. What role do you think deliberately non-instrumental models of erudition, scholarship and critique, which might deliberately include a measure, a measure of self-indulgence and pleasure, um, can play in disrupting or refusing a technocratic discourse of innovation and impact? This is right up on my street. I, I think this is really, really important that we kind of escape this techno-determinism which has governed a lot of discourse about uh, investment in higher education. So I'm yeah. over to you. Super yeah, thank you, Katrina. And I mean, that's very, very well put. Um, yeah, there is obviously a kind of vocabulary available to us of, 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 of the criticals, the skills and criticism and, and the critical um, perspective, which is furnished um, to, to, to students by virtue of our, 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 our teaching and experience with them. I mean, obviously, I'm entirely in favor of that. It would be bizarre to <laughs> be anything other than in favor of it. How does one articulate it in that university and in that public setting? I think there's some interesting kind of, you know, slight hurdles to get over. I think critical is understood to be negativity and that they're, to widen the set of possibilities is to complicate them to such an extent that they can no longer be assimilated. You know, we've obviously got to get beyond that because are we're simply going to fall for traps that have been laid for us in various different kinds of ways. I mean, what, what's more important at the moment than in certainly in US politics than QAnon conspiracy theorizing? How are we going to address that other than through critical analysis, intervention, assessment of evidence and interrogation? How are we going to do that otherwise than that? So we have an absolute commitment to that for our own sake and our own well-being. I think we need to kind of find our way to something which is which states that imperative. Sometimes it's done in terms of critical citizenship, and that's an interesting notion itself. I, I'm obviously very much in favor of that. It's probably worth mentioning, uh, you know, at the same time that the defenses of the humanities in relation to to the enhancement of democracy are not as straightforward as they were uh, perhaps five years ago. Um, there have been changes in the world, not, not just in the US, but in Europe and beyond, which have made that a more challenging argument to make. <clears throat> I'm still committed to it. And I think those of us who live in deliberative democracies need to articulate the value of, of precisely that kind of commitment to discussion, to argument, to debate, to, to reasoned contributions to ones that are based on evidence and to well-constructed arguments. But I think, I think the stakes have been raised in different ways in the last, uh, during the COVID crisis and, and prior to that, and the, during the, 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 the Trump presidency, we see the effects in ersatz Trumpism in the UK. So it's, it's, it's with us in powerful ways. Okay, um, I'm, I'm, the chat fun function is full of very good questions. I'm gonna take two more, if that's okay, and then we'll, we'll, we'll come to an end. So um, this is now random because I'm not able to read all of them. Yeah, um, Eric Sandweis, a, a great talk, Dan, someone who studied and worked in multiple national contexts, would you say that Ireland with its con contained scale still allowing for national conversations and mm. with its still recent sense of itself as a political entity is a particularly fruitful ground for the humanities? 
In other words, do dialogue and communication have a more meaningful opportunity to, to embed themselves at the roots of policy, economy, and social organization in Ireland than they would in the UK or in the US? Yeah, great question, Eric. Thank you very much, Eric. Eric. Question of scale? Yeah, Eric uh, was a, a Fulbright Fellow um, at NUI Galway last year and uh, unfortunately did not get the full experience courtesy of COVID, but uh, we look forward to welcoming him back. He's at Indiana University, so thank you, Eric, uh, for that question. That's a very, that's a very interesting, that, there's so much to be said about that. I'll, I'll try to be brief. There are particular opportunities in Ireland. Um, I think some of them, as I indicated in my talk, I'm at times dismayed, and I grew up in the US and you know, did some of my studies in Canada and, and, uh, and in the UK, I'm sometimes dismayed by Ireland's lack of ability to recognize itself. We know where the Nobel prizes have come from in Ireland. We know that very well. Uh, we look forward to great successes in Nobel prizes, I think, if you were betting, you would think that they're going to be in literature and unlikely to be in other areas. That's not an argument against uh, anyone pursuing those things, but, but we have an area of astonishing achievement in that. And we know what we're known for internationally. We're known particularly for culture in the broadest terms, but for literature, for, for poetry, for theater, for theater, for music. And we, if we don't support that, in policy terms and an investment, we imperil the future. And it's not just because we're good at it, it's because there's something that's really been contributed to the world by this. I mean, think of the number of times that Yates was quoted, you know, uh, in the last few years. I'd say his citation indices are right up there. <laughs> so yeah, but there is a problem of recognition, interesting enough in Ireland and an inability to value that and to take it for granted. In terms of the specifics of entering the kind of policy domain, that's a large topic which has been addressed recently by a, in a collaborative project, a research for public policy by the uh, Irish Research Council and the Royal Irish Academy. And there is a, an interesting and valuable, do, valuable document uh, that's been produced by that, by, uh, uh, by Mary Doyle that I was able to participate in. So I think there are opportunities, but it's, it's, it's a very underdeveloped area. I think there's... I think what you get in Ireland, partly because it's small, is a trusted trader approach. So there's certain individuals, and they are often individuals who are trusted as go-to people for advice on, on policy. And a reluctance to move beyond that, where it is moved beyond, it's typically going to Deloitte and other consultancy firms who are very expensive, but they will deliver, and they'll deliver in the way that you want. So you've raised a great question, Eric. I think there's work to be done there. And there is, I think, a, a mood and, and a commitment and desire to do that at the moment in Ireland. I'm going to uh, conclude the uh, chat with Mary Canning, the president of the Royal Irish Academy, who I'm very happy to say has a background in the humanities. And I'm going to read out her comment. Thank you, Dan, for a fascinating lecture. You're right when you state there was no attention to humanities in, la in the last innovation strategy. It is now urgent to make the case for the humanities as new strategies for research innovation are going forward. It may be a useless exercise to try to make the case on economic terms. It would be better to focus on what you talked about, for example, the value of philosophy, ethics, and so on. The Royal Irish Academy will continue to make that case, and I would welcome hearing from you and me and others what we think 
would be a good way to feed these points into those who are going to make decisions on the next strategy. So that's a big challenge and a big task, Mary, that you have you have given us here. Mm -hmm. um, I, I actually, can I say something before I hand over to you? I think what's come up from this discussion is very clear in the sense that what you've said is that kind of our business is hermeneutic and it is about perhaps conflicting interpretation, but about the business of open-ended interpretation against the naivety of data. And people confuse data with fact. That's the world how it is. It's not, it's not. And COVID is a good case study in this regard in terms of all this confusing data that was thrown out uh, and had to be corrected and so on. So I think this business of, of open-ended interpretation against the utility argument that came out as a strong line of, of argument in favor of the humanities in your talk, but I'm handing over to you. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Mary. I mean, I think that's that's clearly one of the longstanding missions of the Royal Irish Academy is, is precisely to create the spaces in which the, those conversations can take place and where there is, and I should have mentioned it really, of course, and really in answer to my in answer to the last question about that's something the Royal Irish Academy, I think has had a unique role in doing because it's, it's, it's trusted as a body, it's not single individuals are trusted. So there, there's a really important commitment there. I mean, I guess I, I take it that you're a little bit skeptical about those slightly more you know, hard-nosed justifications based on economic value. My own view is I think we have to have multiple strategies. That's kind of the point that I was trying to make. I don't think it's enough to say uh, that you know, the humanities are good in themselves. They are, but we are in a, in a somewhat difficult and defensive position. I mean, Anna, you made an interesting point, I think, earlier about, you know, so much of the science is, is not, you know, it's not translated into practical benefit. A little bit off, you know, hopefully not a tangent, but I was looking at Science Magazine in the summer and, you know, which comes out on a weekly basis. If you look at Science Magazine, a lot of their feature stories have absolutely nothing to do with anything of any practical benefit. There was a cover story on how squirrels jump. I thought it was fantastic. I learned a lot about squirrels and their, <laughs> their physiology. No, I think there's a, there's a kind of parody of science that's going on, which, which, which makes us think it always translates into practical benefit. We need those powerful curiosity-driven um, approaches to the world. And in that context, we have enormous common cause. I mean, that's ultimately, I think, how work in the humanities progresses. It's through that desire to answer a burning question, something that you want to know the answer for. And that was certainly how I built my relationship to it and what keeps me going in it. So I think we can understand and value and, and, and embrace that motivation. But I, I still think we can do more. We can furnish our, our, our students with a little bit more vocabulary. I think we can articulate it, hopefully not in a reductive or banal way, the kind of skills that are out there, but just something which makes it a little easier for them to talk to their friends and not to be apologetic about their degrees, but to go and to say, no, I've got a contribution to make. I intend to make it. Great closing word, I think. So, um, so let me bring this uh, to a close by, first of all, thanking you, Dan, very, very warmly for a fascinating, engaging, passionate uh, lecture. And I would like to thank uh, the audience for attending for your excellent questions. And at this point, I really want to thank um, Ricky Schoen. Mm. Uh, I'd like to thank you for, for, for organizing this, for hosting this, for running this so 
efficiently. I also want to thank Megan Custer, who has stepped up and helped as well. And I would like to thank the PhD students and postdocs who've attended today and the visiting scholars who come together and engage in, in, in discourse and debate. And perhaps COVID has taught me one thing. These technologies are all wonderful, aren't they? It's great that we can have this discussion online, but oh my God, it's far better to meet and to discuss and to use the unforeseen, and this is what we also engage in, the unforeseen, the unforeseen conversation is so much more productive so often than the things that we plan. So I'm really delighted that we're returning to face-to-face -face encounters. So um, at this point, thank you very much for your excellent questions. Thanks to Dan. Dan, I'm looking forward to having a glass of wine with you mm -hmm. and an informal conversation at some point in the future and to have you in the Institute indeed. So thanks to everybody and enjoy the weekend. And you gave us lots of food for thought. So thanks again and bye-bye from me. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.